0: All right, that was exciting, wasn't it? i just so thankful for uh, the Yangs sharing about uh, that ministry, and uh, we are really praying for you and uh, looking forward to how uh, we can serve uh, alongside of you. It's exciting now because we get to study our Bibles together again today, and that is a huge privilege and uh, responsibility and normally we think uh, that the best way to do that is by just looking at one particular passage of scripture together Uh, primarily that helps us focus Uh, we can make sure we get the meaning of the text there are lots of reasons so we don't normally get to look at a lot of verses instead we uh, just focus on a smaller section and try to work our way through the bible verse by verse but we're doing something a little different the past several uh, Sundays. Uh, we've been stepping back and looking at the Bible as a whole uh, because uh, really we want to get the big picture. Uh, and so we are uh, spending time focusing in on the entire Old Testament, really, which is a little difficult because it means that. You need to look at a, a lot of verses, so you're gonna have to, to work with me. Uh, but I think it's important to do every once in a while because it's easy to get so focused in on the specifics that you miss the big picture. We miss the, the forest for the trees. Isn't that a, a saying? Um, and when we miss the forest, uh, when we miss the big picture, we aren't really gonna understand the specifics. That's the problem. It's like with a puzzle, I guess. Uh, you can look at one piece of the puzzle uh, but you need to also look at the big picture on the front of the box or those individual pieces are going to be pretty confusing and impossible really to put together which definitely is something that happens when you're reading the gospels actually it happens if you're reading the new testament as a whole for sure but we are going to be looking a little at the gospel of luke specifically in a couple of weeks we're going to just settle down and look at Jesus in Luke for a while. And it definitely happens there. The specifics are confusing without the big picture. So like for example, let me, let me show you an example of how this works in the Gospel of Luke. Because there's a question that is driving why Luke's writing. This is not just a random gospel. There is a purpose And uh, you might remember, he starts his gospel out by telling us that purpose. He says that he's writing so that we might be certain. So he knows there's a temptation to be uncertain. And the reason that temptation would have been so compelling was because there was a question that people would have been asking about Jesus. They were asking about Jesus. The Pharisees asked it about Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 almost as a charge against Jesus. And a little while later in Luke chapter 21, verse seven, the disciples ask almost the same exact question. If you look at the way the Pharisees put it in Luke chapter 17, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And the disciples question is a little harder, I suppose, but it's really the same thing. They say Luke chapter 21, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And those are pivotal questions behind the Gospel of Luke. They are questions that help you understand why he's writing. And yet, you're not really going to understand those questions and what they mean. The kingdom of God signs something is taking place. And why those questions are so significant and were so troubling unless you step back and get the big picture context behind them. And the big picture context is the Old Testament. That's the point. And this is so important because, you know, what happens a lot of times, what happens is we come to the Bible with our context and the questions that we think are so interesting. And we try to force the Bible to answer our questions. But really, if we are going to be helped by the Bible, we have to know the Bible and its context so well that it tells us the questions that we are supposed to be asking. And one of the questions that people in Jesus's day were asking as they were reading the Old Testament has to do with the establishment of the kingdom of God. When was it coming? What were the signs? And of course, one reason that was important to them was the same reason it's important to us, because it's awesome, (laughs) the kingdom of God, and because it's such a big part of what the Old Testament Is about You remember that was even our first word for understanding the Old Testament. We are looking at a number of different words to help us understand the Old Testament. And the first was the kingdom of God. God ruling this earth through a chosen human representative. And we should all be interested in the kingdom of God, when it's gonna come, because it's gonna be the fulfillment of absolutely everything. It's gonna be perfect. It's gonna be beautiful. But that is a question that the... Jewish people in Jesus's day should have especially been interested in. We should all be interested in that, but the Jewish people in Jesus's day should have especially been interested in that question because the Old Testament tells us not only that God had promised to establish a kingdom, but also that he had promised to bring that kingdom into existence Through the descendants of Abraham. You open your Old Testament and bang, there is a promised kingdom. What God is going to do. And there is a how as well. How God's going to do it. How God is going to establish that kingdom. Through the offspring of Abraham. Which is why the Jewish people in Jesus' day must have been thinking a lot about the kingdom of God. They could literally open their Bible and see that God had made them as a people some very particular promises in these things that we call covenants. And that was the second word we spent time on. The first word was kingdom because that's what the Old Testament is about. And the second word was covenant because covenants explain how God is going to establish that kingdom. And we looked first at his commitment to Abraham about making his descendants a great nation and giving them land and blessing them. And maybe most importantly, using them to bring blessing to the entire world. That is what passage of scripture? Genesis 12, one to three. Someday I'm gonna call you up and ask you that. Maybe, probably not. But that is a promise to reverse the curse. And that tells us, what makes the history of Israel so significant. It's right there at the beginning to tell us why we should be so interested in these people, because not so much because we're just interested in the history of ancient people groups, though I'm sure some of you are, but we are interested in what is going to happen to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament because we're trying to figure out how God is going to use these people to establish the kingdom that he's promised. And we started a couple weeks ago now with the covenant God made with them. And there's such a big part of this that that was even our third key word, you might remember, for getting the big picture, Israel. And this covenant that God makes with them is called the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant is important because God is telling the nation of Israel if they would obey him, They would be his image to the world, and he would bless them in such a significant way that the whole world would see them and be drawn to the kingdom of God. But of course, the problem is they didn't obey God, and instead of becoming different than the nations, they actually forsook God and became like the nations, and it got so bad that they even ended up saying to God, we want a king for the purpose of being like the nations. And we're kind of running through a lot of biblical history, I know, but this is the book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel starts a little sad because after God's kept so many promises and rescued Israel so many times, they come to God and basically say they want out of the covenant. We want a kingdom, just not the kingdom of God. And so as we read their story, we're wondering about God's response. And the good news is we saw God didn't give up on them. Instead, at this very moment, he reaffirmed his commitment to the plan he started. And this is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again, you know, I'm just trying to help you see the the big picture so you can understand the specific questions people were asking about Jesus and especially about the kingdom of God. It's, It's not just because they thought this whole idea of the kingdom was so awesome. It's because they were reading their Bibles and they knew God had made these incredible promises to them over and over. And that in spite of how bad they got, God kept reaffirming his commitment to the plan, first to Abraham, then to Moses, and then to David. And this was our fourth big word actually, understanding the Old Testament, kingdom, covenant, Israel, David. And because the promise that God made to David was so important, we spent a long time on it. And yet, even though we spent a long time on it, it's maybe a little confusing. I know some of you had questions because there are parts, Second Samuel chapter 7, that you look at it. There are parts where you look at it and you wonder, is God talking about David's immediate offspring? like his actual son. You know this passage, if you don't, you can look at it. And then there are other parts where you wonder, is he talking about one of his sons that comes later? And I understand asking those questions partly because I'm not sure this text is even meant by itself to fully answer all of them. It's more programmatic, meaning it lays a foundation to be built upon later by assuring us, one, That in spite of everything that's happened, God is irrevocably committed to this plan. As he's taking his promise to Abraham and giving it to David, but making it bigger and better. By committing himself to raising up a descendant from the line of David who will build up a house for him and rule over an eternal kingdom. And then, besides giving us the promise, he gives us a little glimpse as to how he's going to do that. And probably the most confusing part, actually, when, and maybe you remember this from last week, God says that when the descendant of David sins, and that was confusing because we thought he was talking about Jesus. And ultimately, he is. But there were a lot of kings before Jesus in this Davidic line. And so this is explaining how the covenant is going to work because God knows how history is going to go. And it's going to be a long time until Jesus. And so this is a big promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And he wants them to understand that it's not going to be just any descendant of David who is going to be blessed and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. It is going to be a king who keeps the Mosaic covenant perfectly, and if he doesn't, he'll be punished, and the whole nation with him, because the king will represent the nation, which is good news if he obeys, because that means the nation will be able to experience the blessings of the covenant, and yet it's bad news if he doesn't, and of course the problem, as we keep reading the rest of Samuel through Kings, is that the descendants of of David don't obey God until it gets so bad that they eventually get the whole nation kicked out of the promised land. And that is, that is kind of earth-shattering, really, if you're reading the Old Testament. I just took you from Genesis through Kings, and how Kings ends is earth-shattering. They call it the exile. Israel is kicked out of the promised land, and it is such a huge problem Israel being kicked out of the promised land, that it could even be the fifth word for understanding the Old Testament. It's not, but it's so important it could be, exile. Because look, if you're reading Genesis 1 and 2, it's awesome, this kingdom the Bible talks about. You want that. It's perfect. It's how things should be. And yet you get to Genesis 3, and man rebels, and you're like, no, that's not how things should be. And then God makes a promise, and it's like, yeah, okay, now we're going. He's going to defeat Satan. And you think, maybe it's going to be through Noah because he's righteous, and his name literally means rest, and there's a prophecy about him, and God even starts the whole world over again, and you're like, maybe this is going to happen. But then Noah does pretty much the same exact thing Adam did, and the world heads in the same direction it did before, and you're like, no, are you kidding me? But then God makes a promise to Abram about establishing a kingdom through his descendants. And you're like, okay, okay, we're headed in the right direction again. And then God rescues Israel from exile in Egypt and he enters into a covenant with them. And you're thinking, yes, yes, it's on. And it gets even better as you read Joshua and you see God keeping all of his promises. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. Until right after that judges. The very next book, you see the nation of Israel doesn't obey. Or keep any of the promises they made to God and they end up as pagan as everyone else. And yet even then God's so patient and he promises to send this great king. And you're thinking maybe this is finally the solution. Only to watch Israel get so bad that by the end of the Old Testament story God sends them back to the very place they started with Abram. And I know it's a lot of recap but that's shocking if you think about the Old Testament story. Because you're doing all this reading in Genesis through Kings. And you think it's going somewhere. As you see God calling Abram out of Babylon in Genesis. To start this nation that is going to bring blessing to the entire world. And yet, if you hit fast forward. And you fast forward through the whole story. All the way to Kings. You see God sending that very nation all these years later back to Babylon. Because they're just like everyone else and you're like what is go- what is going on what is going on in fact there's a really sad scene in ezekiel and to understand how sad you have to remember how in exodus god told israel to make him a tabernacle he saves israel from exile to make a tabernacle and after they made the tabernacle it says The glory of God came and filled it. You remember the story, right? It's at the end of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And that is just so huge. God living with you. That's literally like you could ask Israel, where does God live? 503 Tabernacle Lane. God is choosing to live with Israel, and it gets even better because the tabernacle was a tent, which is why when they got into the promised land, they turned that tent into a building they called the temple, and when they made the temple, you remember what happened? This is 1 Kings chapter 8. It says 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11, after the priest took the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And that is like, you know what that's like? That is like heaven on earth. That is their Garden of Eden moment. And yet after all their sin and after all their rebellion, Ezekiel sees this vision in Ezekiel 10. And Ezekiel writes, this is Ezekiel, so try to listen. Ezekiel 10, he writes, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house, that's the temple, and stood over the cherubim, and cherubim are angels. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And you know what that's a vision of? It's a vision basically of God packing up and leaving the temple. It is like God is gathering his things and moving out. And so, as the story of the Old Testament is wrapping up, we're watching Israel taken back to where they started, Babylon, and we're watching God sort of getting up and moving out of what we think of as his earthly home, the temple, and we're wondering what? We're wondering does this mean that god is finished with his plan it's like we saw adam and we and he failed but we had hope because of noah and then he failed and yet we had hope because of israel and yet israel this whole nation fails and yet we had hope because of david if if just one descendant of david would obey then maybe it would be on and yet obviously they didn't which is a problem for israel and yet if we're reading our bibles properly is also a major problem for us. Because it's kind of like you might imagine us, ever since man got kicked out of the garden, you might imagine us standing there on the outside of the garden looking for a way back in. How can we get this world back to its original design? How can the kingdom of God be established? How do we get back in? And God said He's gonna bring us back in through Israel and a descendant of David somehow. And yet now, after all these years later and all this reading, it's like Israel and the Davidic king, as we finish the story, is on the outside looking in with the rest of us as well. So with all this rebellion and sadness and sin, we need to know what is going on. Is God finished with his plan? Did it just not work? Which is why in come the prophets. Cue the prophets. Isaiah through Malachi. And you know, I'm just trying to kind of show you how the Bible works. Because Genesis through Kings, it tells the story. Really, Chronicles is just the same story with editorial. Some of the other books like Ezra and Nehemiah, their postscript. The main story of the Old Testament is found in Genesis through Kings. And then there are these prophets, and the prophets are coming onto the scene not so much to add to the story, but to explain it. They're almost like color commentators, you might say. And they're pausing the show to explain what's going on. And one of the big things they explain is why Israel got kicked out. There are prophets who came before the exile, before they got kicked out. There are prophets who came during the exile, and there are prophets who came after the exile. So some of the prophets before the exile are explaining why they're going to get kicked out. Some of the prophets who come after the exile are explaining why they got kicked out. But they have to do all this explaining because it's confusing with God making these promises. So you'll see first they explain the problems not with God because that's what we as humans always do. We want to say God broke the covenant and actually these prophets have to come on to the scene and say no God is actually keeping the covenant because he didn't only promise blessing for obedience he promised curses for disobedience and so God in his mercy even before Israel got kicked out raised up all these prophets who came in and said listen we're in trouble because we're not keeping the covenant we made with God and if we don't change God is going to keep his promise to punish us because that was part of the deal you remember we made back at Mount Sinai and so you have these prophets who are pleading with the people like Isaiah for example and you'll want to turn to Isaiah chapter one because we'll spend most of our time in Isaiah but Isaiah comes and says Isaiah one verse two hear O heavens and give ear O earth And it's almost like God's looking for someone to talk to because what he's about to say is so shocking. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And you wanna know how shocking this is? He goes on, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. In other words, animals know who they belong to, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And how does God feel about this? Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And now I, I love this part. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Because it's almost like God's saying, please, please, why won't you just obey? And I know sometimes we think of the God that we read about in the Old Testament as so hard, but it is the opposite. He is so merciful because we see he goes to all these lengths to enter into this relationship with Israel to save the world, and yet in spite of all that he's done for them, they rebel, and yet even though Israel won't listen, he's still giving them so many warnings before he judges them, which makes it obvious that when he finally does judge them, it's not because he hadn't been faithful to the commitment he made them, Instead, it's because they weren't faithful to the commitment they made him. So the first thing these prophets do is come and explain why Israel was being kicked out of the land, which is really sad, of course. But the thing is, that is not where the prophets end. And this is important. (laughs) We're almost getting to it. It is the reason why you open up the Gospels and you see, in spite of all the troubles Israel had faced and was facing, There was such anticipation. There was such expectation around the time of Jesus. And the reason they are hopeful is because while, yeah, sure, the prophets did come and say we're going to be judged, almost immediately afterward they said, but wait, 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 that doesn't mean it's over. In fact, the opposite. It is so not over that it is going to be bigger and better and more glorious than you ever thought it could. And this brings us to the fifth word you need to understand if you're gonna understand the big picture of the Old Testament. One kingdom, two covenant, three Israel, four David, five eschatology. And uh, actually that word doesn't matter so much but the idea does because by eschatology we mean what the Old Testament says about last things, how things end. And this is such a big subject. There's no way I'm going to give you everything. In fact, I'm, I'm barely giving you anything. We sometimes think eschatology, we go to Revelation, but Revelation, for the most part, is quoting the Old Testament. So there's a lot about eschatology in the Old Testament. But I, I want to just show you a few passages to illustrate that the Old Testament fully expects God is going to end things By fulfilling his kingdom promises to Israel and through Israel to the world. There is a lot of hope in the prophets. And the hope is, if you want a a long summary quote, the hope is God plans to restore his creation that was marred at the fall. And God's plans are holistic. He will restore all things material and immaterial. This includes individuals, the nation Israel, and the nations of the world. The kingdom plan will be carried out through the eternal and unconditional covenants, Noahic, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New. The Mosaic covenant was a temporary and unconditional covenant that Israel failed because Israel did not keep the Mosaic covenant, God's kingdom did not come in its fullness, and there is a need for the superior new covenant which will enable Israel and others to obey the Lord. But here it is. There is a coming day of the Lord when the nations of the earth will be judged and Israel will be saved, kingdom conditions will follow when the ultimate Davidic ruler will reign from Jerusalem over a restored Israel and the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I know that's a little thick. That's the problem with quotes like that. And if you missed it, I gave it to you on the notes I sent in the email. If you don't get that, you can ask to be on the list. But I'm going to try to summarize anyway by just looking at one prophet specifically and highlighting four of the key end time promises that that he makes. And I'm using the prophet Isaiah because he kind of gives us the whole Old Testament in a book. Definitely he's a good summary of the prophets. So here's a little summary of Old Testament eschatology to help you understand what the prophets were telling people to expect and why people were so excited around the days of Jesus, starting with a first big promise that God makes about the temple. So if you want to summarize the prophets' promises, this is a big one, temple. Starting in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Which comes after you remember isaiah talking about the judgment there in isaiah chapter one so chapter one is mostly bad news but in chapter two isaiah goes on and gives a little bit of good news starting with an introduction in verse one the word that isaiah the son of amos saw concerning judah and jerusalem and i know we think the prophets are so confusing but that's not too difficult to understand right because he actually literally tells us who he's talking about he says concerning who judah and jerusalem and those are real places in israel obviously he's just been talking about the judgment of judah and israel in in chapter one and so he's talking about these real places in israel and then next he tells us the timing Verse two, it shall come to pass in the latter days, which means this is future stuff. So in Isaiah one, Israel is gonna be judged. But what is gonna happen in the latter days? He says, the mountain of the house of the Lord. And what what is that? What is the house of the Lord? The house of the Lord is the temple. It is used hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament. And I cannot find one time in the Old Testament where it's not the tabernacle or the temple that he's talking about. And it makes sense here because the temple was located on a mountain, so I don't think it's too complicated, right? He's saying the mountain the temple is located on shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And lifted up above the hills, you might ask, does he mean literally? Maybe, I'm, I'm not sure, that wouldn't be too difficult for God. But language, you know, it could be an expression. Either way, at the very least, it means this mountain will become the most significant place on the planet at some point in the future. Because he writes, all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come. In other words, in the latter days, the whole world is gonna wanna come to Jerusalem, to the temple. Why? Just listen to what they say. They say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the whole world is going to want to go to Jerusalem because that's where they can best learn more about God and they want to learn God's word. And and why is Jerusalem gonna be so significant? Because from this location, God is gonna judge the nations and decide disputes. And the result, he says, is that they're gonna beat their swords into plowshares, that's verse four, because they don't need weapons anymore. So they're gonna use the weapons they had formerly somehow for farming. Why? Because the whole world is at peace. Which sounds like what? If you're connecting the dots. It sounds like God is describing the fulfillment of what he said he was wanting to do through Israel all the way back at the beginning when it came to the Abrahamic Covenant, and then more specifically in the Mosaic Covenant. He's gonna make Israel a blessing to the nations. You remember how they were to be a model of the kingdom of God, and the result would be that nations would come and want to learn more about God. Even, you know, you get a little glimpse of that in Solomon's kingdom, right? Because for a while you think Solomon might be the one. And what happens in Solomon's kingdom that points forward to this? Anybody remember? when the queen of Sheba comes, the nations come to Solomon. And what do they say? What does she say? She's like, oh, that the whole world would have a king like this. That's a sneak peek, actually. And of course, Solomon failed, but God's not finished with this plan. And Isaiah realizes that and knows that even though Israel is going to be judged, there's a day coming when God is going to dwell in the midst of his people and make all this happen. And that's first big picture temple. Isaiah chapter 2, and actually all throughout the the prophets. Second, Isaiah chapter 11. If the first end times promise has to do with God dwelling again in his temple, the, the second has to do with the king ruling on a throne. And this little outline comes from a great book on the Old Testament by someone named Matthew Harmon. I'm not so good with alliteration, but temple throne. Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And shall come forth, again means we're talking about the future. This is Isaiah 11.1. 1. But a stump from Jesse. Who's Jesse? He's the father of David. And yet this is way after David, right? And why is he even talking about David? It's because of the promise God made David. And he's saying all these years later, the Davidic covenant is still on. Actually, the book of Isaiah, in in large part, is about God fulfilling the Davidic covenant. And here in Isaiah 11, definitely, he's saying the Davidic covenant, that promise is, is still on in the future. A descendant of David is going to come on the scene. And what's going to happen when he does? Verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. In other words, he's going to be holy the way that we need a king to be. And what's he going to do? Second part of verse 3, he shall not judge. He's going to judge, but he's not going to judge a certain way by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Little Bible trivia, that last phrase there. Who, who quotes that in the New Testament? When we study through the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul does when he talks about... Spiritual warfare. Jesus wore this belt. The Messiah wore this belt even before we do. And anyway, here I want you to notice that he is going to have to judge, and there are still going to be poor, and there's still going to be disputes, and there's still going to be sin to deal with. So obviously, we're not quite in heaven yet, but this is something happening on our earth. And what Isaiah's promising, he's promising, even though after Israel was sent into exile, they didn't really have kings. A king is still going to rise from the line of David who is holy and who is everything we ever wanted a king to be, and he's gonna bring the whole world into submission. He's gonna rule and subdue the world the way Adam should have. And if you want proof, here it is. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea." And you see what's happening. What's happening is after judgment, it looked like it was over for Israel. And yet just when we're about to lose hope, Isaiah comes in and he assures us, in spite of the judgment, the Davidic covenant is still on and the Abrahamic covenant is still on as the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord, which is the definition of blessing. It's kind of like the entire world is brought back To garden of Eden-like conditions, animals are relating to each other and us the way they should be, only actually better. And he makes it sound almost like heaven, but at the same time, it's not quite heaven, because verse three and four, as we said, there still are disputes and the poor and nursing children. And and so, what's going on? What's going on is we saw God's plan was to rule over this earth through a human representative. And to bring things into submission and to make this place, this world, a place that could be filled with his presence. And we saw, he said he was gonna do it through Israel. And yet, we also saw when Israel was given the opportunity to serve, they failed and did not become the kind of holy kingdom the world desperately needed and were sent into exile. And yet now we're seeing that didn't mean God's plan for them was over because prophets like Isaiah are clearly hoping that God was still going to accomplish what he said he would accomplish through them. And you know, whatever you think about how the New Testament explains that, this is just basic Old Testament end times expectation. They thought the story was still going somewhere. And when they talk about where it's going, first they talk about this temple, second they talk about a throne. And if you wonder if they thought that, read Luke 1 and 2. Read Luke 1 and 2. What does Mary say and what does Zachariah say when they hear about the Messiah? And third, third, and I don't like this T so much, they talk about temple, they talk about throne, but they also talk about turf or land. And you know, the prophets are filled with all these descriptions of what it would be like when the Davidic king rules, like take Isaiah chapter 65 as another illustration. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, now Isaiah 65 verse 17, where God says, for behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, which makes you think that He's talking about heaven, but it's not quite heaven. He's talking about yet, yet, I don't think, because read the rest. He writes, "...but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress." No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few years or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die 100 years old, and the sinner 100 years old shall be accursed. And so he's talking about a city, Jerusalem, and a place, and it sounds amazing, no crying, and people living a really long time. I mean, when someone dies at 100, you're like, that person must have really been a bad sinner because everybody's just living so long. And he goes on. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall... Be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, which is awesome. And I I especially love that last little line, the dust shall be the serpent's food, because it refers back to what? the judgment in Genesis. It's reminding us there's a time coming when someone is going to reverse the curse, and yet even when the curse has been lifted, the judgment on the snake is still on. God is going to win. Temple, throne, turf, and this is my own tea here, uh, transformation, which is sort of the theme, actually, of Isaiah from the beginning. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 21, it's kind of neat to see how Isaiah works, I think. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 21, he says, how the faithful city has become a whore or a harlot, she who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. And he's talking about Jerusalem, and he keeps talking about how bad it is, and that's the beginning of the book. But if you fast forward through Isaiah all the way to the end, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 10, Something has happened, obviously, because he says, be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice with her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. Verse 12, for thus says the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed; you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother Comfort, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem, and basically the whole question of the book of Isaiah is, how does wicked Jerusalem at the beginning become this great big holy city by the end? There's such a transformation, and it's not just physical, it's spiritual, and, and you can check out Isaiah chapter 12, because Isaiah 12 gives you this. Isaiah 6 to 12 is kind of the answer key actually, and Isaiah 12 gives a description of what the exiles returning to Israel are going to be saying. Then you will say on that day, the day you return, when exile is finally over, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. So they're saved, and they're loving God and they're worshiping. And you can read all kinds of other descriptions and other prophets about how much they'll be transformed. Jeremiah 31 is an example of that. But I guess the point I'm trying to say over and over is, while the way the story of Israel ends in Kings kind of makes it look like it's over, God raises up these prophets who say it's not. It's so not over. As one man explains, they, they say, though Israel was going to be judged and sent to the nations for disobeying the covenant they made with God, in the future, God would gather Israel together again and restore her to her land. It's going to be like a valley of dead bones, right? That God resurrects. And from there, she would experience incredible material and spiritual blessings under the leadership of the ultimate son of David. And as a result, the nations who will be judged for a time will also in the end benefit from the reign of this great king and become the people of God alongside Israel in an earthly kingdom as God completes the plan he started all the way back in the garden to bring this world into submission and to rule over this world through a chosen human representative. And that is Old Testament eschatology in a nutshell. God has made this promise to Israel and through Israel to the world and he's going to keep it. Judgment, exile first, but after exile, temple, throne, turf, transformation. And yet, here's the final piece for understanding the big picture context of what's going on in the Gospels. Because as The Old Testament ends. What happens? The people of Israel do come back to the land, from Babylon to the land, just like God said they would, same amount of time even. And it was kind of a sacrifice for them to come back because Babylon was this great, huge, beautiful city, and the Jews had done really well there. And yet they're coming back to Jerusalem, which would have seemed like a step back like moving from the city back to the the village, if you know what I'm saying, from the world's perspective. And yet they were coming back. Why? Probably because they listened to Ezekiel, finally. (laughs) Because of all these great promises from the prophets, and they were probably thinking all those promises were going to be fulfilled. When? Well, when would you expect? Probably right after they got back into the land. And so for Israel, it's like, okay, we're back. Now, let's get that great big kingdom thing you were talking about going. And yet, you know, when they got back into the land after having been in Babylon, it didn't really go like that at all, actually. There weren't really that many of them that even came back at first. And they didn't even have the whole land. They had Jerusalem, a little space around Jerusalem. And most of the time, even as they were living In their own country, they were being ruled over these foreign ruled over by these foreign countries, which is the opposite of what they were hoping. (laughs) And was probably pretty confusing, honestly, for them. I mean, it would be like having soldiers come and kick you out of your house and take it over and force you to live somewhere else, and then being allowed to come back and live in your house only to find there were other people already living there and they owned it and they forced you to pay them rent. Which is why in the days of Jesus, and now we're getting to it, why this super long sermon, in in the days of Jesus, most of the Israelites would have felt like they were still living in the time of exile. They would have felt like exile wasn't over. Even though they were back in the land, technically, for 400 years they had come back from Babylon, they weren't experiencing the full future kingdom that the prophets promised they would. And that's why this kingdom of God thing was such a pressing question, because it wasn't just like, oh, we don't like foreigners living in our land. Instead, it was the fact they understood God was taking Israel somewhere bigger than just being occupied by the Romans. He was planning to do something awesome with them, to establish them as a kingdom and use them to bring his promised blessing to the entire world. Which is why, you know, in the days of Jesus, what do we find godly Israelites doing? We find them hoping. Look at Mary. Look at Zechariah in the beginning of Luke. Look at Simeon and that old woman, Anna. They were hoping and they were longing that the promised one would come, the Davidic king. And so there was like this massive expectation that God would send the deliverer he promised and that deliverer would establish his kingdom. And most of them thought he would do that how? By overthrowing Rome. And Rome was the nation in control of Israel. And so they were looking for this great warrior who would enable them to establish the kingdom, which is why I think they were having such a hard time understanding Jesus. That's where this uncertainty is coming from. Because on the the one hand, he had all these signs of being a great Davidic king. He had the genealogy, read Matthew 1. He was going around doing all these things that only the Messiah could do. He healed blind people for a reason because that's what the Old Testament talked about the Messiah being able to do. And casting out demons and cleansing lepers, all of those were were signs of the Davidic king. And yet what was confusing was at the same time, he wasn't fighting anyone. And you know, where's his army? It's just him and this group of fishermen Maybe there was Simon the zealot there, so that was a little hopeful. But these guys didn't look like much. And Jesus, certainly, he just looks like this Jewish carpenter going around teaching, not some warrior. And so I think that's part of why the Pharisees come, in Luke 17 even, and they ask Jesus, where are the signs of this kingdom? Because it's like they're making fun. The disciples ask the same question. Jesus answers it totally different in Luke 21. In Luke 17, he answers the Pharisees a certain way because he knows what they're doing. It's like they're making fun saying, you know, we read all these great things in the prophets about how this promised Davidic king is gonna deliver us and establish God's kingdom. And we hear you saying the kingdom of God is at hand, but where is it? Because all we see is you walking around with this group of fishermen. Where is this kingdom? And part of why Luke is written is to help us understand this is not a step backwards in God's salvation plan. It's a step forward. It's not because his mission as Messiah has failed that he didn't overthrow Rome. In fact, you read Luke and you'll find over and over again, Jesus saying he has to die. It's necessary. It must happen. Why? He says, so that the scriptures could be fulfilled. And what is Jesus saying? To these people who are hoping that the kingdom of God would come, and who had all this Old Testament eschatology of temple, throne, turn, turf, and, and transformation, who are hoping Israel would become a source of worldwide blessing as the Davidic king defeats their enemies and makes the world right again, he's saying it's still happening, but you have to go back And look at all those prophecies about the kingdom and how God was going to establish that kingdom again because you're missing a big important part of the how. And it's there in Isaiah even, actually. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 53. See if you can this week figure out how it's there in Isaiah 6, especially if you think of Isaiah 6 to 12 as a unit but I'll give you a hint of what they were missing. Exactly, because while they were right to be hoping God would establish his kingdom, and they were right to be hoping that God would send a rescuer to deliver them, they didn't understand the full extent of what they needed to be delivered from. As they looked at the prophets, the promise and their situation, they were thinking, you know what the real problem is? The real problem is Rome. As they look back at that former generation of Israelites and they were wondering, why are we in this situation now? Why aren't we able to establish the kingdom? Their solution was it must be because we didn't keep the law well enough. So what we need to do is try harder. And that's why the Pharisees existed. You know that, right? That's why the Pharisees even existed. They thought if we just get serious, (laughs) like if we are really careful and we try hard enough, then God can just come and establish the kingdom through the Messiah by defeating their enemies. That's why they got so mad that Jesus was eating with sinners. They're like, how can he be the Messiah? Because what has to happen is we have to be so right. And if we just get so right, then God can send the Messiah who will defeat our enemies. In other words, they thought the, the main reason the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament hadn't been established yet was because of physical enemies like Rome. And while obviously that was a problem and the Old Testament does promise those enemies would eventually be defeated, Jesus makes it clear those physical enemies aren't the only obstacle to God achieving the kingdom plan that he promised way back at the beginning because the real problem is way worse. For one thing, of course, there's a Satan. You remember in Genesis 3, God said Satan had to be defeated. And obviously, how are we going to have peace on earth unless Satan is defeated? And then there's also sin, and that's really the fundamental issue. Again, read Isaiah 6 with Isaiah in the presence of God, and the angels talking about the way it's going to be in the future. Remember, what do the, the angels say in Isaiah 6? I'll give it to you. They, they talk about the whole earth being filled with the knowledge of the Lord. When does that happen? Isaiah chapter 12, when the kingdom is established. And so those angels are talking about what's going to happen in the future, and what's Isaiah saying? Saying, how is that going to happen? I live, in a, a people of un, I live with unclean people. Look at Israel. How can that happen? Woe is me. And he says that because he knows the problem. If the kingdom of God is going to be established and the glory of God is going to fill the earth and God's people are going to dwell in his presence, the problem of sin has to be dealt with. Which is why before Jesus would be established as the great conquering, ruling Davidic king, he would have to come and keep the law of God perfectly for those who couldn't. He would have to die as a sacrifice so that they could be cleansed and forgiven and able to live with God. And he would have to rise again to defeat death so that he could rule forever just the way God promised he would. It's just so awesome, the Old Testament. I know it's hard to understand sometimes. But if you keep your eye on the big picture, you'll see God's plan is way better than anything we could ever dream up for ourselves. God's people in God's place experiencing God's presence forever and yet you'll also see the problem is way worse than we would naturally think it is because it's not just our circumstances or our situation that's the problem and the reason the kingdom couldn't be established, it's our hearts So no matter what advantages God gives us, we won't ever be able to fix this world so that it's what God designed it to be. But God can, and he promised he will, and that promise is absolutely everything. So if you want hope, and you want hope, you need it, right? With hope, we can keep going without hope. What's, what's the point? You want hope. Here it is. God's promised he would send a savior who will not only defeat our physical enemies, but also triumph over Satan, provide lasting peace with God, and reverse the curse just the way God said he would all the way back at the beginning. And nothing, absolutely nothing can stop him. Not even man's sin. Not even man's rebellion. And actually, you don't even need the prophets for that. Look at the story of Jacob in Genesis. How bad is Jacob, who is, represents who? Israel. And yet what happens at the end of Genesis? It's so cool. Abraham, when he first went, this is for free, it's not in the notes, but Abraham, when he first went to Egypt, didn't trust God. And what happened to Pharaoh as a result? The nations. Pharaoh was basically like cursed by God. By the end, you have Jacob who's just this terrible guy always doing all these terrible things but how does how does Genesis end when Jacob Israel meets the nations Pharaoh what does Jacob do he blesses Pharaoh God's got done he even illustrates through Jacob in the book of Genesis that he's going to get done exactly what he promised no matter how awful we are he is going to take everything sad and terrible and use it for our good and his glory that is good news believe God he will keep his promises submit to Jesus and this week worship him because he is the great Davidic king he is the fulfillment of all these promises He's dealt with the fundamental problem, sin, and he's not done yet. He's coming back, and he's going to do everything the Old Testament and the New Testament says he would. So, believers, let's just hold on and hope. Father, thank you for your word. It's big. I know there's all these things, and maybe I'm going through it too fast and all that, Lord, but... We just pray that your Holy Spirit would do the, the preaching now as we leave this place. And you've given us so many great things to think about. Help us not to get so like in the mundane, uh, upset about this or that, our seat is not comfortable, or the, you know, whatever, that we miss out on this glorious thing you're doing through Jesus. And while we can't grasp it all, we, we have such great truths to think about. And so we just ask that your Holy Spirit would bring us back to what's real, to these promises and that we would, you would enable us to grab hold of them with both hands and be joyful in a very difficult world uh, because uh, we know. We know what you've done, and we have at least an idea of what you're going to do. And we know that you're always faithful. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.